Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton, and shortly we'll be joined by Adam Grossman. Uh, there's another great show today, and Adam had a chance to sit down with Corey Leff. Uh, Corey's better known as John Wall Street. Uh, John Wall Street, which is located at the intersection of sports and finance, is really a destination for the educated sports fan. A graduate of the University of Arizona, Corey started his career in sports talk radio at Fox Sports Affiliate in Tucson. And then from there, he spent much of the next decade honing his business skills as part of a pair of of tech startups. In 2017, he pulled that sports, business, and finance background all together with the launch of John Wall Street, which was a daily e-newsletter that has since become a must-read for the most influential names in sports business. You know, what I find really cool about Corey's approach is that in a world where it's increasingly offers up of, of hot takes and, and different uh, you know views on the sports industry. He takes the route of providing the most relevant sports-related uh, business news in, in an easily digestible format with commentary from both the sports business and fan perspectives. So everyone enjoy th- this wide-ranging interview Adam has with Corey Leff. Welcome, everyone, to the Northwestern University Masters of Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Grossman. Today, uh, we have Corey Left of John Wall Street. Um, Corey's had a very interesting career, both inside, outside, and um, all around the sports industry. He's, he's got great contacts, great connections. He's a great writer. We're looking forward to talking to him. So, Corey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for uh, that nice introduction, man. Uh, I appreciate <laughs> that. It's it's been a it's been a windy road. Um, it's been a windy road to get to this John Wall Street point. Um, I'll just give you just the, for the audience who's not familiar with me a little yeah, bit of yeah. background. Um, I started my career in sports talk radio. I, I really wanted to be Mike Frances. I grew up in New York as a big New York sports fan, and um, I, I wanted to talk about the game. Uh, when I was 20 years old, John Rooney. I went to the University of Arizona. Um, and John Rooney had been, who was at the time the voice of the Chicago White Sox, had heard me on the air and called the local Fox Sports affiliate and, and recommended that they hire me on, uh, you know, because the, he had just found the next great radio talent. Um, that was an amazing break for me. I, I loved every minute of, of, of working at uh, the flagship for the U of A. Uh, but ultimately, what I found was that the game is just not that exciting. Um, and, and there's certainly not a whole lot of money in talking about the game. Uh, unless you get to the, you know, your Stephen A level, right? Um, so uh, I, I ended up leaving Sports Talk and I ended up uh, kind of falling into the startup space for a while, working for a couple different uh, nondescript tech startups. Um, but it was a great opportunity for me because startup, you know, is, is a great way to learn business. Um, you do a little bit of everything. And and so I have a, because of of working, you know, seven, eight years in that space, um, I developed a pretty robust uh, skill set, um, mostly on the business development and operational side. And um, I ended up in the early 2010s making a move into the equity research world. And um, ultimately, John Wall Street became the platform that I was looking for in radio um, to share my thoughts. But what I did with John Wall Street was kind of combine everything I'd done in my life and I'd learned and um, between sports, between business, and, and ultimately finance, and, and tied it all together, and, and kind of tried to fill a hole in the industry where I thought 
there's a lot of people putting out news and obviously there's a ton of value in breaking news. Um, there's far less people in taking that news and putting it into context and telling people why it mattered and, um, and really sharing some insight uh, about those stories. And, and that's kind of where John Wall Street has managed to find a niche. Um, it's, it, you know, certainly in the course of some conversations, we'll break some news, but the majority of what we're doing, like the story we wrote today is, uh, you know, Scott Soshnick, who's the Sportico editor-in-chief and, and John Wall Street recently moved under the Sportico brand, put out a story about how Harris Blitzer is looking to potentially uh, acquire the Mets. And uh, obviously there's speculation about whether or not SNY would come along with, uh, you know, with that acquisition. Um, if it did come with that acquisition, it would become, uh, you know, an opportunity for them to create what people are referring to as kind of a super regional sports network where you have teams across multiple markets uh, all under one ownership group. And so we got into the viability of, of the super RSN model today in, in the newsletter. And, um, you know, again, it's probably just something you're not going to see a whole lot of, of, of writing or reporting about elsewhere. And that's, that's, that's the hole we're trying to fill. Yeah, so a bunch of things I want to talk about in the opening, but one of the things that I want to start out with is equity research. Our audience may not be familiar exactly with what equity research is or what that does, because obviously that's a core of what you're looking at now. So can you explain to our audience what equity research is and how it applies in the sports industry? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, I was working for a sell-side TMT shop, uh, Technology Media and Telecom, and uh, basically the idea of, of sell-side research is we would sell the research we did to institutional investors and give them what's supposed to be an independent look at, uh, at, at different publicly traded equities. And, um, you know, a lot of it is about, uh, we, 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 we didn't do a whole lot of, of um, you know, issuing sells. Most of what we did was issuing buys and companies that were intrinsically undervalued um, and, and trying to identify those companies so that investors could make some money. Um, and that's, you know, kind of at its core what, what equity research is about. Uh, initially, the concept for John Wall Street was to be content marketing to sell equity research, to, to, excuse me, to sell equity research. Um, Kevin Durant tore his Achilles. Uh, the, a lot of the market thought that the, Durant was going to uh, sign with the Knicks. Uh, if Durant signed with the Knicks, obviously there was a lot of value in that for Madison Square Garden networks in terms of viewership and, and advertising. Um, and so when Durant tore his Achilles and it became apparent that he was not going to be coming to New York, Madison Square Garden networks dropped by, I think it was eight or nine percent. Um, and I thought there was an opportunity to kind of tie those two stories together. I can explain how Durant's injury impacted Madison Square Garden networks. And oh, by the way, we have a report in Madison Square Garden networks that you could purchase if you're uh, so inclined to learn more about the company. Um, I still think that's a really viable model and something that, you know, I would really like Sportico to get into. Um, I don't know that we necessarily need or want to be writing equity research, but certainly think we can align with some established players um, and, and offer that on a co-branded basis. Um, with, with that said, what I found to be interesting when I really got involved with the John Wall Street audience, I stopped writing specifically about public equities because um, what I was finding was that my audience wasn't really the institutional investor that the equity research shop was was targeting. Uh, my audience became kind of the who's who of the sports world, team owners and league executives and media executives and really the decision makers of the industry. But what I, what I found to be interesting was that 
those people are buying equity research too, but they're not buying equity research for the purpose uh, or the same purpose as the institutional investor. Uh, they're using it more uh, for kind of in industry recognizance, um, looking to see what competitors are doing, looking to see trends um, and, and generate ideas and best practices. And so, um, it's, I thought it was very interesting that, you know, kind of as sports has gotten smarter over the last two decades, um, there's been a um, kind of a shift towards consuming that kind of material. Yeah, can you, that last point is interesting. Um, and one of the things we talk about in the classes is how people use quantitative analysis and data in the sports industry. You mentioned how the sports industry has gotten smarter. Can you talk about how that the sports industry has gotten smarter from the type of research and analysis you were just describing. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's there. There's an owner um, who uh, I was talking to. I don't know. Now it's probably about a year or two ago. But he was explaining that you know he's a billionaire, but he wouldn't have been able to buy uh, the team or teams that he owns. Um, you know, in today's market, the teams are two billion dollars a pop. Um, you know, when he was able to buy the teams, he was able to buy them for a couple hundred million. Um, and that's obviously a big difference. Um, really, even in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, you could buy teams for a couple hundred million dollars. Um, maybe not NFL teams, but, you, you know, in the other three leagues. Um, over the last, you know, 15 years, obviously, the prices of, of those teams have skyrocketed and they're being treated not as the kind of small business that, you know, kind of the family run business that it had always been, um, but they're being treated, um, you know, as corporations and, and uh, they're hiring data analysts and, and building data warehouses and it's, it's certainly just become a far more sophisticated operation because there's so much more money at stake. And when you're talking to, um, you know, whether it's owners or investors or people inside and outside of the sports industry and, you know, using your equity uh, research background, what are they looking at from a revenue perspective? What streams are they looking at? How do they look at growth and how do they analyze, you know, potential opportunities in the space? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I'm not really sure, um, you know, what everybody is looking at. Um, in an equity research report, um, I, I think it's not. I think it's generally speaking, you know, you have certain cornerstone revenue streams. You have obviously media rights. You have ticketing. Uh, you have, uh, you know, your merchandise sales and uh, you know advertising. So you everybody kind of has the same types of revenue streams. I don't think that um, that they're looking at the, the revenue numbers necessarily. I think that you know it's a lot more about. Um, innovation, um, you know, acquisitions, um, and how they're folding those types of things into businesses. Uh, I think it's more of an idea generation tool than it is, um, you know, a, a looking at the PNL. Yeah, and speaking of innovation, I want to get back to something you mentioned before about entrepreneurships and uh, starting your own, you know, uh, uh, company or starting your own brand with John Wall Street, and also working at, at startups. So, can you talk more about your startup experience? Uh, previously to John Wall Street, and then um, talk about um, what it was like to kind of develop your own brand and your own kind of content platform to start out with. I do want to get into your experience with Sports Illustrated and Sportico, but I kind of want to start from the beginning in terms of this is what it was like when you started up uh, working at startups and then starting your own uh, idea. Yeah, um, you know, so I, I worked for a couple of nondescript startups um, that were based out of South Florida. One was a a document management industry, a document management platform for uh, the banking industry, and, and another one was a um, kind of like a reverse auction platform for local services. Um, 
you know, it, it, I, I kind of fell into them. Um, I, I kind of knew the owners and they were developing, uh, the, you know, these companies and there was an opportunity for me to come in and get in on the ground floor and, and, and you know, kind of have my fingerprints on, on, on the company. Um, and I had two very different experiences. The first company we, we got involved with um, had some success uh, because the guys that I was aligned with had a, a large uh, private bank and uh, we were able to tap into their network and, and, and the company was kind of able to hit the ground running from the start. Uh, the second company we launched, uh, we didn't have that kind of infrastructure in place. And, and uh, while I thought it was a really good idea and the, the, the technology behind it um, at the time was, was pretty strong and I still don't think there's really anything like it um we never really got it off the ground and we didn't make any money so uh, i had kind of two very different experiences in the startup world after the second one kind of didn't go the way we hoped i kind of got burnt out which is what let me which led me to the equity research space um but uh you know the the idea of working for uh the idea of working for a company that didn't have, you know, a, a corporate structure um, and, and to be building something from the ground up and learning to put out, uh, you know, fires and all different parts of the business and um, and learning to do it on a shoestring budget, like all those lessons paid off once I kind of decided to, to pursue the John Wall Street, uh, you know, angle. And uh, when I left the second startup, my, you know, my wife was like, you're done with startup. You're not going to be doing this anymore. It's just, it's too up and down. There's too many risks. Um, John Wall Street, for me, the, the way I was able to sell it to my wife was like, hey, listen, this isn't a startup. It's not like this technology is going to make it or not make it. This is just me. Like, this is just everything I've learned in my life. And, um, you know, it, this is just my, uh, you know, it's it's just my mind and my brain and the stuff that, uh, you know, I'm able to, to, to analyze and, and to put into context. And so it was a, you know, I think she was more willing to, to go with that um, because I guess there's a little bit less risk in that. Um, also, when I launched on Wall Street, I was still working in equity research full time. Um, so that was a huge benefit for me. I didn't have to worry about generating revenue initially. Um, the initial goal of John Wall Street really was to just give myself the platform that I missed in radio. Um, I certainly hoped it would turn into something, um, but initially the only goal was to put out content people would want to read. And I think that gave me a huge advantage because you see a lot of, um, you know, and, and this is kind of ultimately the problem that, uh, you know, I had with Sports Illustrated is that, and, and I shouldn't say problem because it wasn't like there was like an issue. I, I left because the sport of opportunity was, was, was just a far better opportunity for me. But, the, you know, the, the core issue behind, um, you know, a publication like Sports Illustrated for me is that they're targeting the fan. Um, and that's not really my my target demographic. And so a story on, you know, a super regional sports network isn't going to generate a ton of clicks. Um, but again, when I started John Wall Street, I didn't need to generate a lot of clicks. I wasn't trying to generate advertising revenue. Um, and, and the only goal was to build an influential audience. And so um, I was able to put everything else aside and just put out good content. Um, and so, yeah, that's, the, you know, certainly learning the startup, the stuff I learned in startup was um, where a, a lot of what not to spend money on, um, you know, what not to spend time on, um, things that don't uh, directly grow the business, uh, you know, website design and, you know, uh, 
IP and, and, and you know, there's just, there's not a whole lot of, of, of reason to be getting into that kind of stuff at the beginning uh, of, of a startup because you don't know if you're going to make it. And, and that's a lot of time and money that people spend on things that don't really matter that are not going to impact whether or not the business is successful. So um, being able to put a lot of that stuff aside um, and, and just focus on the content was, was huge and, and certainly enabled me to get to where we, we've been able to get it. Yeah, and I, I want to build off that point. You know, obviously, like you said, focusing on your core strength and really maximizing your core strength is a key part of um, being successful, particularly when you're starting off your own company. But one of the things you've done really successfully is build that audience and build the influential audience that you described. How did you go about building the audience to the point where it is today, um, where you're able to get decision makers in the industry to, to consistently read the newsletter and read your content? Um, it's not a, there, there's no, you know, I wish I had like a, a great answer in terms of, you know, people ask me all the time about that. And it's not like you can growth hack, you know, billionaires. It's it, 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 team owners and the audience that I'm reaching um, it, it is very much a relationship building type of, of venture. Um, and so for me, it's, you know, I always say to people, I'm not particularly great at any one thing except for networking. Networking is the one skill that I'm particularly adept at. And um, that served me well because um, I've been able to, you know, if I could get one team owner to uh, to read the newsletter and uh, just taking it back a step, but newsletter in general has been, in terms of email as a distribution platform, um, has been valuable to me because I'm able to see exactly who's reading it and who's signing up for it. Um, and then, like I said, I'm able to kind of use my ability to, to, um, to network, to reach out to those people, develop relationships with those people, get them to open up to me, which allows me to put up, excuse me, put out better content. Um, and then it becomes very cyclical um, because if I have somebody influential talking in the newsletter, they send it around to their audience and then their audience starts to read and then I touch out, you know, touch base with them and develop relationships with them and then fold them into the newsletter. So, um, you know, it's very much a, you know, a one by one relationship building type of model. Um, you know, I, I wish there was a way that I could go and get, you know, 120 team owners to sign up on the same day. It's just, it's not feasible. Um, it's certainly helpful when, um, you know, influential people will will plug me, if you will. Um, I saw, you know, you had you had uh, you had sent over a couple of pre questions before, and you said, you know, what is one of you know your your um, you know one of the most professional rewarding professional accomplishments or something like that? And it might sound silly, but a couple of years ago, um, David Stern was speaking at a uh, at a conference, and somebody on the panel had asked him what he reads on the day to day to stay up to news on uh, to stay up to date on sports business news, and John Wall Street was one of like three things that he had mentioned. And all of a sudden, I'm getting texts from everybody in the room. David Stern just mentioned John Wall Street on the, this panel. Um, so you know, hearing that makes my day. Like if if David Stern is reading the newsletter, well, then everybody you know every other team owner and the commissioner should be reading the newsletter too. And gave me a lot of confidence. Um, and you know, I knew David was a subscriber, but to hear him uh, you know speak 
uh, you know, about it uh, publicly. Um, like I said, it was a huge confidence boost and, um, and, and naturally, uh, you know, I got a lot of registrations that day because if you, if you get David's stamp of approval, then, then other people will, will read. So, um, yeah, a lot of it is just building relationships with influential people and, um, you know, having them kind of, uh, spread the word. Um, you know, I haven't spent a dollar on marketing. Um, I've never bought, a, you know, a Facebook ad or, or, or you know, a, a Google ad to, to drive subscribers, because again, it's never been about the volume for me. It's always been about getting that really, that, that 1% of the sports world that really matters. It's making decisions. Um, and people always say, well, how big do you think you can get John Wall Street? And, and I'm like, no, 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 it's not about how big I can get John Wall Street. I need 120 subscribers. I need the 120 big four sports team owners to be reading this every day. If they are, like the world is our oyster. Yeah, that's a core concept we talk about in our class, right? You want to look at both, you, you know, quantity can be important, but quality is even more important, where if you get the right audience, that helps you to be able to monetize uh, different revenue streams in, in the ways that you talked about. But, you know, I, I want to get back to this networking point in particular. Um, you know, you mentioned that you're getting influential people to open up and talk about their business in ways that obviously have, have driven interest and engagement in the newsletter. How do, how do you do that? How do you get people to open up in the ways um, so you can get the content that you need in order to drive the level of success that you've had. Uh, personal introductions are huge. Like, you know, um, I, you know, Harvey Schiller, I, I call him, you know, Mr. Introduction because, uh, you know, if Harvey, if I, if, if I'll reach out to Harvey and ask him, uh, you know, who should I talk to about this? And he'll give me a name. Um, and if I send that person a text saying Harvey Schiller sent me, they take the call. Um, so personal, per, personal introductions are, are invaluable. Um, but a lot of what I do, it, like I said, is I'll take, um, you know, I'll look at who's signing up on a day to day and do a little bit of homework on them. And um, if, when I find influential people that are, are, are signing up, uh, I'll reach out and, and introduce myself and very slowly develop, you know, a, a relationship. What I try to do a lot of the time is tap into these people uh, to find out what they want to see written about uh, stories that are not being covered that need to be covered um, stories that are being covered, uh, but that are misunderstood. Uh, a large portion of what I do is, is try to put things in the correct context. And so if there's narratives out there that are incorrect, uh, you know, we want to correct them. Um, so giving people uh, a platform, I think is, uh, you know, not everybody wants a public platform. Uh, you know, again, I'm, I, that's kind of been another thing that I think has, you know, I'm willing to do stuff on background. Um, and, you know, a lot of outlets don't really like to do interviews without a source to them. Uh, I've kind of developed this relationship with, with my audience where there's, a, you know, kind of a trust factor um, that I'm not going to just cite anybody. If I'm citing somebody in the story, like they're, you know, close to the story and they understand what's going on. And so the audience kind of takes it for granted that if we want people to, to open up, uh, sometimes we have to give them a little bit of cover. So, um, you know, I think all of that combined um, has helped get people to, to open up. Um, and there's certainly some people who like to see their name in print, um, but I think that most of the audience that I'm talking to um, in terms of like that 1%, they don't, that's not what they're after. Um, they're after, you know, uh, getting it right. And a lot of the media doesn't, they're not focused on getting it right. Uh, a lot of the media just wants to push out the first story. Um, and, you know, again, that's not, I, 
uh, my goal is not to break news. My goal is to to tell people how to think about things and why it matters. And um, so getting it right is is the only thing that really you know what matters to me. And and I think that the audience appreciates that. Yeah, and you you mentioned Sports Illustrated before, and I want to get uh, dive into that Sports Illustrated experience in a little more detail. Uh, in particular, you know, you started this the John Wall Street you know uh, brand. You had your email newsletter, then. You, you went to uh, Sports Illustrated. So can you talk about what it was like to, one, join, you know, that established player that was obviously going through some changes, but two, how you had to, you know, you had something new that you were launching within an established brand. So it's a bit of an entrepreneurial route that you took uh, within Sports Illustrated. Yeah, so Sports Illustrated is interesting because the owner, uh, the, the Maven or Maven, um, is also the owner of the street. Uh, the street is Jim Cramer's finance platform. And so uh, in theory, the idea was that John Wall Street was going to be kind of a bridge between those two audiences. And I think that still makes a lot of sense. Um, the problem I ran into ultimately was that the guy who brought me in to, to serve as that bridge left not long after I got there. Um, and so the integration that I was kind of hoping for never really occurred. Um, but the... It was great. Um, you know, my experience there was great. I don't have anything bad to say about it. Um, you know, being able to do, you know, more video work and, uh, you know, as much as the Sports Illustrated brand has been kind of embattled, um, I think that there's still a lot of people who look at it as like a, like a legacy publication and, and a very well-respected legacy publication. Um, so when I would tell people that, you know, that helped open the doors in terms of some interviews and, and credibility, and I, I certainly think it was, it was a big part of, of getting to the Sportico step and um, just kind of having, yeah, I mean, credibility, I guess, um, that it wasn't just the standalone entity. It was, you know, now under, operating under a, a larger umbrella and, um, you know, there was some value there for for a large media company and and you know certainly i think that just all of that helped get to you know the next step if you will yeah and if there were challenges uh, what were the challenges of potentially launching a new brand kind of within an established brand uh, yeah so the, the yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the challenges were, you know, the biggest challenge I ran into is I just didn't have anybody really championing it after the first, you know, couple of months I was there. Um, because, like I said, the guy who brought me in left, and then I was kind of on a little bit of an island where I wasn't, you know, really a team site that, that Sports Illustrated was, uh, you know, going after, and I'm not really a finance site. Uh, in terms of like providing, you know, stock market analysis and picks and, you know, or buys and, and, and sells. And so, um, it, yeah, like the, it, I was kind of in no man's land, which is, which is ultimately the problem that I kind of found. And because I'm not a, uh, you know, I'm not a volume play, like in terms of clicks, um, you know, I'm not sure that it was like a great fit for either of those platforms ultimately. Um, but, you know, in terms of the, the, the challenges of integration is that I think just you need, when you have a lot of, I think just generally speaking, it's hard for big established companies to, to pivot and to, to do new things um, because the, the machine is kind of just running. Um, and um, so, you know, getting, you know, even a landings, you know, a, 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 a you know, a, onto the, the main homepage, you know, there's just so many hurdles you have to jump through and so many different levels of, uh, you know, see, you know, uh, 
management and and there's just there's just challenges of of working in a big enterprise um that you don't face in startup um you know it, I, I i never met james heckman um you know so like it literally i've never had a call with him so um yeah, I mean, just cracking that nut, I think, is, you know, being, um, you know, one in a company of thousands or hundreds is, is, is a challenge. And, and without kind of somebody, you know, spearheading it for you, it's, it becomes very hard to kind of navigate. And so I think that was probably the biggest, you know, the biggest challenge that I face is that, uh, and I kind of talk about that, um, you know, people, at, I don't know if this is one of your questions, but people will always ask me, like, you know, uh, in terms of like building John Wall Street, like, what are some things that helped you along the way? And, 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 and you know, having mentors and, and people that'll kind of, that will kind of champion what you're doing is critical, whether that's within a big company, uh, you know, or, or if that's, you know, you're doing your own thing and, and you need, you know, people to help you push it uh, and promote it. Uh, and so I always mention Joe Favorito, uh, who is, has been, I mean, a godsend for me, uh, has opened countless doors and, um, and has, and has constantly, uh, you know, promoted me and my efforts and, um, you know, having somebody who's established and well-respected, uh, that that's a huge, you need that. You need somebody who uh, is willing to um, to take what you're doing and, and, and push it forward. Can you then talk about, um, particularly about pushing it forward in the context of what Sportico is, what you're doing at Sportico, how you decided to join Sportico? Um, because obviously that's a um, moving from Sports Illustrated to Sportico, uh, moving from an established brand to a new brand has its own challenges. So can you just talk about you know, again, what Sportico is and why you decided to move into the Sportico uh, universe. Yeah, so Sportico is Penske Media's new sports biz uh, operation, uh, new sports biz platform. The idea the of moving over there was that Sportico is targeting the same kind of 1% that I'm uh, targeting. Uh, so from, a, from an audience standpoint, very much aligned. Um, Scott Soshnick, who I mentioned, who's the editor-in-chief, and I had been talking about um, kind of really servicing that audience for a long time and, and doing things like like holding a Davos of, of sports business where we get, you know, all the team owners and media execs and, and sponsorship execs, uh, you know, to a resort in Park City or wherever and, um, and really, you know, putting on a conference for them. Uh, the sports business space in general is very... I don't know. I shouldn't say very, but it, there's it, there's a lot of players in the sports and sports business space, but nearly all of them play at like the middle or low level of the industry. So you have a lot of people targeting um, kind of that 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 fat middle uh, where you know you have a lot of salespeople and marketing people and not ultimately your decision makers. So you go to the conferences and you'll see team owners, but they're on a panel um, and they come in the back door and they leave the back door and they're not there to learn or to, to you know, they're not there for any purpose other than to kind of promote themselves and their efforts and share some insight. Um, and, and again, I always thought that there was an opportunity to, to, to serve that audience. And so whether that be with events, 
uh, and Scott had been putting on um, kind of these power lunches where they were much smaller scale than what I'm talking about with like a Davos of sports business, but getting, you know, 30 team owners in a room and, you know, obviously a lot of, a lot can get done in that, you know, when you have that kind of influence in, in, in one space and, um, and everybody's kind of uh, sharing ideas and uh, so, so the idea of kind of blowing that out um, and, and, you know, tying in research and data and uh, all of the things that kind of serve that audience, but are not currently being offered. Um, again, you know, there's a lot of people playing uh, and obviously there's a lot of people trying to hit the college audience, you know, or people looking to try to break into the industry. And, and that's why a lot of those team owners and such don't go to the existing conferences because, you know, they're not there to you know, it's not a job fair, um, you know, that's not, their, that's not their goal. Um, and, and there's just not a lot of value in it for them. So, uh, yeah, Sportico for me, uh, was a good fit because I like this, I like the idea of being able to build something from the ground floor up, um, and, and not have to try to figure out, um, you know, I was going to come over and John Wall Street's going to be kind of a, a, you know, a tentpole newsletter for them. And it, you know, it has the exact audience they want to reach so we can use it to obviously, you know, continue to further that uh, mission, but also to push and promote all the other writers and, and news and, and opportunities that we're gonna, you know, we're gonna offer through the platform. Um, but, it, you know, I, I think it, it was more just about philosophically how we think of the business, who we want to target, um, the types of revenue streams that we're looking to tap into, and, um, and, and it was just a great fit. So we're getting towards the end of the time. I just want to ask a couple questions as we round out uh, the podcast. The first, and this is something that you've covered in your newsletter, um, particularly recently, is the impact of uh, coronavirus or COVID-19 on the sports industry. Uh, how are you, you know, obviously given your discussions with uh, influencers and decision makers, what trends are you seeing emerge? Um, you know, what trends are you seeing come out of the coronavirus? So, and in particular, what do you see more from a medium term and long term perspective? Are there trends that are being accelerated because of the impact uh, of the COVID-19? Yeah, so I think the two trends that I think about just off the top of my head that are certain to, to come out of this, one is going to be, I think, um, a shift to like smaller, more intimate settings, right? Like, I just don't think that the next generation of stadiums is going to be 80,000 seats for football. Um, you know, I think, it, you know, you're going to see 50,000 seat stadiums for football and maybe they're 25,000 seat stadiums for baseball. And maybe they're 12,000 seat stadiums for basketball. Um, I, I think that, you know, the idea of, of just packing that many people together is going to be concerning for them. You're also kind of seeing anyway a shift towards more of like premium seating anyway. So, um, you know, I could see a situation where you have, um, you know, a similar amount of seats in the lower bowl, but, you know, significantly less seats available up top. Um, that, you know, I think that's certainly, you know, one potential, uh, you know, outcome of this. I think you're also going to see a lot uh, more, you're going to, teams are going to look to, well, I think actually this is kind of twofold, but one, you're going to obviously see a lot, there's going to be a lot of technological innovation, right? Uh, in terms of getting people into the stadium and, uh, you know, temperature checks and, uh, and food service. And like, so I think that just from a technology, technology standpoint, you're going to see a lot of, um, you know, changes in venue. Uh, I also think that you're going to see teams try to diversify revenue streams a little bit more. Um, and so, uh, you know, obviously everything 
not everything, but a large portion of revenues right now are tied to the gate, are tied to the media revenues. Um, you know, I think that there's, you, you, we saw it recently this week with uh, FC Barcelona rolled out an OTT service. And like, I think that we're certainly headed in a direction where you're gonna see uh, teams, leagues, whatever, try to, to generate um, new uh, and innovative revenue streams um, and, and certainly, you know, try to grow the pie, but also offset some of the, you know, potential risk in the event of a catastrophe, uh, because obviously nobody saw uh, a pandemic shutting down the sports world. So just the way people think about their business um, and, and trying to, you know, innovate in terms of ways to generate new revenues. And um, yeah, I mean, safety is for sure going to be one of it. Um, and, and like I said, I think, you know, just the trend of, you uh, you know, consolidation within the venue is also going to be important. What I think will be interesting is we've seen uh, already kind of a shift towards consolidation in venues, but it's been because t teams and leagues have been moving downtown, right? Uh, something I, you know, you wonder, and and it's far too early to make this call, but if people flee the the, the city, um, you know, do teams and leagues follow? Uh, because, like I said, there's been this trend of of building downtown. Uh, if nobody's downtown, then there's no value in building downtown. Um, you know, remember in the in the 80s and 90s, they built in parking lots in the middle of vast open land because the land was cheap. Um, you know, we, we were not seeing that anymore. And, and you wonder if, uh, you know, if, if kind of building on the outskirts, you know, becomes a, a, a new trend if, if we see a, an exodus from the city. Yeah, and that, you know, some of the things that you're talking about in terms of trends, insights are coming from obviously content that you're creating, but other content that you're looking at. And one of the things we want to, you know, the last question we ask all of our guests is, you know, we have an audience that's focused, particularly from a student perspective, on either entering the sports industry or progressing in the sports industry. So we ask all of our guests, you know, what advice would you have for the students? And from your perspective, you know, one of the things we talked about is content and consuming content and making sure you understand um you know, what's going on in the industry. So, you know, what advice would you give them? And are there content sources that you're looking at um, as you're thinking about building, you know, building your career and building um, um, what you're doing at John Wall Street? Yeah, um, I, I'm a huge believer in consuming content. I am a, an insane content consumer. I read everything I can get my hands on. Um, you know, I, I, I am not a huge book guy. I'm much more, I, frankly, I just don't have really the time. So uh, most of what I do is read the news and, uh, you know, I love uh, analysis. And so stuff like, you know, what Block 6 puts out, you know, not to plug you, but um, is, is far more al along the lines of what John Wall Street does than just about anything else out there. Um, you know, so I really enjoy the content that you guys put out. Um, I, I, you know, aggregation is valuable to me just because, um, you know, there's so much going on in sports and my kind of, you know, a lot of sports business writers will focus on one sport or one market um, because I try to cover stuff kind of across the gamut. There's a lot of stuff happening. So, uh, you know, outlets like front office sports and, and uh, hashtag that do aggregation are valuable for me. Um, you know, I certainly like to read, you know, to follow kind of the greater business, uh, you know, and economies type stuff. So, um, you know, whether it's, you know, a newsletter like the Morning Brew or um, uh, a, a buddy of mine writes something called the Water Coolest, uh, which is, 
is, uh, you know, also another kind of financing newsletter, newsletter, a little bit, you know, it's, it's got a little bit of snark in it. It's, it's good. It's a fun read. Um, it's great. It keeps me up to date on the market and, and trends and, you know, so I, I, yeah, I, I like to, um, anything with, you know, and both obviously the morning brew and the water coolest are, you know, they offer kind of their own little take and analysis on a lot of the stories. So, um, yeah, I, I like to I, I like to find to just read as much. New, you know, Twitter is a huge source for me. Um, I, I'm a big Google Alerts kind of guy, so I have a couple hundred companies that I follow on Google Alerts. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, you know, it, for me, it's just about consumption and and uh, and just digesting as much as I can kind of get my hands on. Yeah, well, first of all, we always appreciate the plug for B6A, so thanks for doing that. Uh, also, that's uh, not a plug. That's that's real. Uh, no, I, I I love your newsletter um, because it it is it's insightful and it tells people what you know how they should be thinking about things and putting it into context. And I think that is just generally speaking, what's missing in the media space. Most of the people in the media are either breaking news, which is invaluable, or they're regurgitating press releases. Um, and and there's just not a ton beyond that. And then just as it applies to students, how would you recommend that students look at the content that the kind of sources that you're looking at as well? Um, I don't, I'm not sure what you mean by, you know, looking at them. If a lot of students, again, are looking to pursue jobs, pursue careers, pursue content. You were talking about in the context of, you know, networking. I would. Yeah. So, I mean, networking is great. Um, the best way to network, though, is put out content. Um, you know, actually it's, it's funny because, you know, I know you guys are Northwestern and I, I speak frequently, uh, at Chris Lincheski's class. He's a professor at Columbia, uh, in their sports management program. Um, and Chris always says, you know, there's, you have these kids that will go to Harvard undergrad and they go to Columbia sports business and they think that they're going to graduate and a team is going to hire them and put them in their front office. And it's like, dude, no way. You have kids that have literally been sitting in their basement uh, you know, recording podcasts or writing content or doing analytics. Um, and those people are literally like miles ahead of you uh, in terms of getting a job with a team. So um, putting out content uh, is great because it allows you to be discovered. It, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a resume. It's, and it's much better than a resume because it's actually, you know, actionable and, and practical. Um, so, you know, I always tell people like, find the medium that you're comfortable with, uh, you know, find a niche that you can offer some insider perspective in and just start putting out content. And if it's good, it will be found. People will consume it and your audience will grow. Do it consistently because, you know, that's part of it, but, you know, putting out good content that, um, putting out good content is the best way to get yourself hired, uh, you know, in the sports world. That's a great place to end it, Corey. I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for your advice for the students. Uh, thank you for sharing more about your career journey. And we appreciate having you on the podcast. Dude, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.